on today's episode of, oh, wait, 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 that's not how we start off. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Leo Flowers. By the way, you can message me on Instagram at leoflowers2000 on Instagram. And then we also have an Instagram for the, uh, the podcast called Before You Kill Yourself. So you can message me on either one of those and I will respond to you. We also have a Facebook page called Before You Kill Yourself. But that before is the letter B and then the number four. Somebody took before you kill you. I can't believe somebody actually took that. So uh, there are more, there's multiple ways to reach out to me. We have a Twitter call before you kill yourself, with also with the B and then four. Uh, so reach out to your boy. Send me messages. I'm, I'm already receiving a lot of messages. So I thank you, uh, first of all, everyone who's reached out, sent me messages uh, about uh, people they shared it with, how uh, it's helped them, it saved their life. Um, and it, those are very powerful and keep me going. So. Thank you so much for sharing your your stories and uh, and know that I'm touched by them all and that I also respond to them all. Uh, on today's episode, we have Hallie Reed, who is an occupational therapist, and we talk about why the we need occupational therapy and the importance of it. And I know you're like occupational therapy, uh, but what's beautiful is we get into the nuts and bolts of journaling. And not just journaling. I'm not just like, hey, go write something down. We get into the questions to ask yourself to kind of unpack what you're feeling and why you're feeling that, right? Uh, we also get into how to define who you are and and what prevents people from being happy. This is This is a beautiful conversation because a lot of times, at least when I'm thinking about happiness and uh it's about like, what do I have to add to? Them? What do I, what am I missing? We're always like, what am I missing? And instead of like, what do we need to remove? So we really get into the science and the evidence of what makes people happy. And we also understand that happiness is not a permanent state, but how do we uh, weave in and out of that lane more frequently, at least? Um, and then we talk about how to change expectations because how, because a lot of times that's uh, tied into how we feel. We get into seeking out optimism. That's right, seeking out optimist optimism. That means that we have to be active in seeking it out. And, uh, and we get into some other stuff. Divorced parents, if you have divorced parents, and what that's like and how to approach things as a team. So if, you, if you're married... And you have kids. How do how do you approach problems as a unit? We get into a lot of stuff. We cover a lot of ground in this one. Uh, and she has a quote in here: "Seeking knowledge is a way that I nurture myself." I love that quote. Seeking knowledge is a way that I nurture myself. So I'm glad you tuned in to seek knowledge, and uh, and so let's get into nurturing yourself. And if you haven't yet, you can go to thrivewithleo.com. Uh, to work with yours truly, one-on-one. Yours truly, I got that from my buddy Siddiqui Fuller, who, rest in peace, is no longer with us. It, it wasn't, uh, he didn't end his life. It, it, he had a chronic stomach uh, issue. But he's like, yours truly. Uh, so I am. I say that to, to keep his memory alive. Rest in peace, Siddiqui Fuller. Now, with that said, 
Let's get into the episode. Hallie Reed, uh, you're an occupational therapist. You're in Portland, Oregon. I'm excited to have you on uh, because occupational therapy is, is one of those therapies that isn't talked enough about as far as I'm concerned. Um, I have my master's in vocational rehabilitation. So I, I have a deep appreciation uh, for the work you do. But for the listeners, can you just, can you tell them the difference between occupational therapy and physical therapy? Yes, absolutely. And thank you, Leo, for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so the difference really between physical therapy and occupational therapy kind of comes down to the core of the profession or the scope of the practice. And occupational therapy is really focused on our day-to-day or everyone's day-to-day occupations. So occupations are the things that people want to do or need to do that bring them health and wellness, that help them with their routines, their rituals, their habits. And while physical therapy may look at pieces of that, they're focused more on the smaller individual segments of that. So what is the strength and range of motion or what are the more biomedical physical things you need to do to be able to engage in the world? And, you know, I've often seen it kind of explained like, you know, a PT may teach you to walk again, but an OT is going to teach you how to dance or use those skills to do the things that are meaningful for you. So powerful, you know, and and that's really uh, helpful at at a time like this when so many people are uh, have lost their jobs and are, are looking for new work. And and some of them have lost their jobs due to injury. And so they're, they're, they're learning how to, how to get involved in that again. And, and with that loss is, is a lot of uh, strain on uh, e- emotional health and mental health. How does uh, occupational therapy uh, assist with that part, that piece of it? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, when it comes to emotional well-being or mental health, we look a lot at more of the big picture. So what are the things that you can't do right now? And are they being driven by something that's about your performance or are they being driven by something that's more of a systemic barrier? So right now, COVID-19, for example, huge barrier to a lot of people doing their routines or jobs or things they used to do before. And so now we're being forced to rethink how we would approach something. And so You know, when working with someone with mental health challenges, for example, we're looking at things that might be more environmentally driven. So you mentioned earlier, Leo, that you have a master's in vocational rehab. I used to work at a place where we would partner with people who helped individuals find employment in the community. And as an OT, working with someone who might be looking for work, but they have a mental illness, I'm looking at things like what kinds of environmental inputs are good for individuals that I work with and which ones are not. So are they saying yes to a job that might not have the kind of environmental support, whether that be lights or sounds, things like that, that are going to impede their ability to do their job? And then ultimately that leads to a bigger issue of being poorly satisfied with their performance or losing their job or being more stressed out. So what's this right fit between the person, their environment, and the occupation that they're trying to do. And that's how we approach it when it comes to mental health. Because at the end of the day, when we all go to the doctor or some medical provider, people ask, how are we doing or what's changed in your life? And people don't say, you know, well, I'm feeling 
this, this, and this, they might, they most often say, I feel like I can't do what I once did before. So OT is about the doing of life and how do we get you back to that? You you know, uh, I love that you mentioned matching the person with the environment, because I think that people who, who don't have any type of like physical disability or, or learning uh, disabilities, uh, even they don't realize how much their environment is impacting their performance, whether, because I remember I used to work at a nightclub. I was a, I was a door guy, and um, the noise was just jarring on my bones. And, you know, it, it affected my sleep, the smoke, the, the, all the different things. And I don't think we, we, don't, we don't put enough thought into matching our workplace with our, uh, our, our personality and what we can emotionally handle. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think your example, Leo, really points out that there were certain sensory inputs that were impacting not just your performance or likability of the job, but other occupations like sleep. And so we often as OTs are trained and um, also look at some of the sensory inputs from your environment. So do you tend to gravitate towards you know, auditory inputs or are those things that make you uncomfortable and so you avoid them. And so, you know, if I had been working with you as an OT in that instance, we would have discussions about like, what are the things you seek out? What are the things you avoid? And what does that mean about the kind of jobs you're doing? Kind of in the frame of the bigger picture, because if you have to do this job to reach a long-term goal, then we're going to have conversations about, you know, what's realistic, what do we need to do now for a little bit that gets you to your long-term goal. But we we have these tools available to us, and they kind of help us assess someone's sensory processing, someone's sensory registration, because we often don't know what's irritating us or what might be impacting us at home that happened 12 hours ago, right? And so if we can educate ourselves as humans about all the little things that are going on, we're more empowered to make a decision or choice for us that helps us reach our long-term goal. And I think of OT as that, you know, we're just going to help you learn a little bit more about who you are and help you rethink and reframe the problem so that you can solve it for yourself. Is there a hierarchy of senses? Meaning like when you, because you talk Mm -hmm. uh, about sensory processing, is there like, you know, the, the thing that affects us the most emotionally or, or mentally, or, you know, our performance the most is, is hearing and then sight and then taste. Is there, is there a hierarchy to that or, or is there a test to figure out what, we, what affects us the most? That's a really great question. You know, I'm not as trained or educated in the neuroscience or neurobiology behind it, but I do know that there is one model Um, that we're trained in as OTs, the sensory processing model. And it really looks at this idea that everyone has a neurological threshold to the input coming in. So I like to think of it as as a cup of water. And some people's threshold to fill up the cup is smaller, and some people's threshold to fill up the cup is larger. And what that means is that it might take less or more of some kind of input for your body to register at a neurological level that that information is coming in. And then we each have what's called a behavioral response. So what that means is that whatever happens when that threshold is hit, we either actively do something to counteract it or we 
passively just deal with the information. And so we have a sensory tool called the sensory profile. It's a self-questionnaire that you would fill out under the guidance of an OT, and it would help you figure out what those thresholds are and what that behavioral response tendency is for you and help you kind of get a different view of what might have been going on for you as it relates to sensory information with the idea that every human being has a different sensory processing pattern because we all have unique neurobiological underpinnings and nervous systems as based on, you know, environment, experience, childhood, all those things. And so what we seek out and what we avoid is going to be very unique to each of us. I like that, what we seek out and what we avoid. That, that sounds like a great journal entry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, to, to, to ask yourself, you know, what, what did I seek out today? What did I pursue? What did I go after? What was I proactive about? And, you know, what did I avoid? And usually in that avoidance column, we're, we're usually just avoiding emotion. So I, I like the idea of what did I seek out and what did I avoid? Um, yeah, and I, go ahead. I was going to say, Leo, sorry, that I think what you're speaking to about a journal entry, it helps you kind of re-look at the problem, right? Like we, we often get stuck trying to solve problems the same ways, even though we think we're approaching it differently. And I think that a you know, new way of looking at the problem can often come from exploring it, you know, with a new lens or with a new person. And so one of the reasons I really love working as an OT is that we often look at things outside of the human being because commonly we have a very reductionist approach, unfortunately, to health and well-being, especially in our westernized societies. And so when we can look at things from a different way, we can pull it out of the individual and make it less about what's going on with them and more about what control and power they have in their environment. Because every person has a sensory processing pattern that's unique to them that exists whether you live with schizophrenia or just survived a stroke or, or coming back from a car accident. And so if that makes it less about a self-internalized stigma and more about what power and control do I have, then you can engage in the world in a way that is meaningful to you. Yeah, it's, it goes back to, the, especially when dealing with anxiety, when you look at the things you can control versus the things you can't control, then it allows you to start taking those first steps towards the, you know, towards your goals uh, versus trying to absorb it all at the same time. Do you journal, Hallie? You know, I do. I don't do it as often as I probably should, but I have had periods in my life where I've journaled a lot. Um, and I tend to ask myself a lot of questions when I journal just because I think that's how my brain makes sense of the world is to ask a lot of why and how questions. Um, and then I often find myself, especially during times of real stress or struggle, kind of reflecting back on journal entries or, you know, looking at things in my memory box, for example, like what was going on in this period of my life that I can learn from now that kind of indicates how I've grown and changed. When you said you asked yourself a lot of why and how questions, can you give us some examples of those why and how? Because so many people struggle with journaling and don't know where to start and uh, often give up. Can, what are some examples that you have? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I, um, often would ask things like, why do I feel this way? Or why did this situation come up? And, and then I would think about like, how could the other person be feeling, let's say it's a conflict-based situation that's causing struggle. You know, I think we often can get so wrapped up in how we feel 
that it's hard to step out of our pair of shoes. But I think if we try to look at it from like that 35,000 foot elevation of like, well, what else is going on? Um, which can take some people a long time to develop that skill. It just helps you kind of look at the situation differently. And when you're really, you know, stressed out or having a lot of anxiety, it's often very helpful just to throw it all out on paper or to like word vomit it to a friend of like how you feel and what's going on. But then to be able to return to it at another time and say, okay, what else was going on here? Or why would this have happened for that person? You know, or what do I know about how I'm responding to this now that could have helped me in that situation? Um, I think circling back is really important. I love that idea of zooming out, you know, because when we do ask ourselves what else is going on, it, it, it improves our, compa- our, our capacity to be compassionate uh, towards the other person and not just looking at the moment, but to say, oh, that's right, that person uh, did just lose uh, someone close to them or they did just lose their job or uh, they, they are suffering from chronic pain to see like what else is feeding the situation that may have uh, blown it up uh, a bit so that uh, we can be more empathetic towards those. And, and remember that no one is intentionally uh, trying to harm us for the most part. Uh, we're just all wrapped up in our own worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, our feelings are, our, our feelings and emotions are instinctual. They're, they're there to protect us and serve a function for us. But I think by having compassion, for others, we learn to have compassion for self, and that's really, at the end of the day, what's so vital is, you know, if if we want to hold, if we want the world to hold space for us, it's important to be able to learn one to hold space for our own individual self, but also for other people, um, because I think it helps just broaden our lens and scope and 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 make it more of a you know communal public approach to how people are doing and feeling, and it makes it less about what have I done wrong and how do I fix it? Because really, we're all in this together. What are some of the, you know, because uh, to circle, talking about circling back, we, we talked about the, uh, how uh, occupational therapists provide environmental support uh, or uh, at least uh, our ideas or strategies to make the environment that you're working in more adaptable to you. What are some of those strategies? I mean, would it, you know, like when I was a, a nightclub guy, I, was, I, I wore uh, earplugs. Uh, you know, uh, I, I made sure I took a nap before. Like, what are some of the things that you've helped people to deal with uh, to improve their environment or make it more adaptable to them? Yeah, those are two really great examples, the earplugs and the taking a nap. Um, so some exam- examples might be... Um, you know, let's say I'm helping someone return to school um, as a college student, and they've had some period of time that they've been away due to their, you know, mental health symptoms or what they're struggling with. And so, knowing that they might be prone to feeling stress differently or in more intense periods, you know, what are the things that they can do to help set up their schedule in a way that they're successful? Like, should they be taking evening classes over morning classes? Um, what kind of information do they need or plan do they need about how they're going to get to school? Like if a crowded bus is overwhelming for them, is there another way to get to school that sets them up to best learn once they arrive? Um, Are there things they need to consider like starting part-time instead of going full-time? 
Um, so just getting them used to thinking about how to approach their routines and how they make them. And, you know, are there certain kinds of classroom environments that might be better? If there's an online option, is that better for me based on, you know, what I'm dealing with right now? Or would it be best to be in a classroom where I can interact with people and ask questions, you know, and hear the daily milieu of the classroom? Or if that's too much, should I start with an online class? So kind of helping individuals become their own best problem solver is really, I think, what it's about. Uh, so it sounds to me like, because when I think about occupational therapy, I've always thought about it as, uh, you know, people who had some type of injury or something they're trying to get over. But it could be somebody who's just who's just looking for a job completely. Um, I hate to use the word able-bodied, but, um, but you know, uh, no, no physical disabilities or no learning disabilities. But sometimes they just haven't been able to find a job that, they feel that they connect with or gel with what that, you know, what types of people come to you? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great observation. I think people commonly associate occupational therapy with more of those physical challenges for a few reasons. I think we often can see physical disabilities more than we can other disabilities um, that are more hidden. And, you know, a lot of people come into contact with OT in a more, um, clinical or, you know, hospital-based setting um, in, when it comes to more physical rehab. But, you know, OT can also be about prevention or promotion um, of health and wellness and prevention of disease. It can also be something that helps you in a time of transition. And I'll give an example of each of those. So I used to work on a specialty program called the Early Assessment Support Alliance, and it's a program here in Oregon that's available to 98% of the state residents through community mental health agencies. And its whole goal is to provide wraparound community-based care to young people who are developing um, illnesses that involve psychosis and trying to support them and keep them meeting their developmental and age-appropriate milestones before the disease becomes very chronic and long-term. And um, some of the things we would do as OTs is try to keep them engaged in school and keep them from experiencing, you know, a full-blown diagnosis of schizophrenia just so that they'd have longer-term quality of life and be less reliant on a system of care as they entered adulthood. Because we all know that adolescence is already very fragile. And so to keep someone connected to, you know, strong adult relationships and supports in the community and doing the things they want and love can keep them from becoming, you know, chronically ill. And then in terms of transitions, you know, it's not uncommon, for example, when people are looking at retirement, let's say, to start thinking about how do I define who I am differently if I'm not getting paid for vocation, but I'm interested in volunteering or I want to still give back somehow. An OT could be who you work with as a consultant or maybe just a mentor who kind of offers you a way to think about how to approach that transition and think about like, what do I do well, you know, in my current paid employment that I want to carry with me into my retirement so that, you know, you maintain a sense of a sense of fulfillment and quality of life. Yeah. You know, when you look at uh, suicidality and especially in cops is, is usually around when they retire. And, and for most people, those first couple years of retirement are the most dangerous uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of people when they're trying to figure out their identity, who they are, what they want their life to be about, their purpose, their meaning, uh, and you know, and, and and to 
maybe they're not now they're not bringing in as much money as they were before and and what does that mean uh you know so there's, there's all these things that that tend to surface so I think that's wonderful that you're helping people uh, with the transition. Is there a way that um, that uh, uh, occupational therapy is not being utilized? That that we that it could be. Is there is there, you know, like I said, because I, I don't hear about it as much as I hear about the other ones. And and how do we uh, expand it? Where where does it need to be that it's not? Yeah, that's such a great question, and I could go on and on and on about that, but I will <laughs> try to stay succinct and clear. I think one of the things to consider is, you know, I think OT is very young as a profession. In 2017, we celebrated our centennial, at least in this country, of being 100 years old. Um, and I think that one of the things is to encourage people to think about engagement in life or everyday living outside of just seeking it because something happened. So I think occupational therapists need to be better at advocating for what we do and thinking about how we promote wellness and no better time than right now, for example, with everyone facing, you know, disruption in their everyday life because of something they can't control. Um, and I think OT has a real place in, um, public health and prevention. So being more community-based, you know, helping people, whether it be, you know, being your own independent consultant or, you know, running your own business, thinking about how we fit into the, you know, everyday society in a different way versus being more of that traditional clinical care model where someone has this diagnosis, they're getting this care and they're going to get, the OT will do this and get reimbursed. You know, so encouraging ourselves to think outside the box and you know, bring the skill set that we have, which is, you know, understanding the human lifespan from a developmental standpoint, being able to help individuals, families, communities, um, and really sharing what we do. And I think being able to make sense of what we do in the way the people we're talking to will understand, that's how I've had the most successes. You know, what do they care about? What is it they need to do? And how can I explain what I could offer in a way that makes sense to their, their language and view of the world? What got you involved in this work? Oh, that's uh -oh. such a great question. Uh -oh. No, it's such a great question, Leo. So I had always wanted to, I guess I should say, I've always been fascinated with mental health and why the brain works the way it does. And, you know, what, what really prevents people from being happy. And I had always been interested in that. And so I'd thought about psychology, psychiatry, but I wanted to do more than just help people, you know, think about things differently. I wanted to help them plan and do things differently. And so when I found occupational therapy, you know, I knew so little about it, but I got into OT school and my very first class was OT and mental health practice. And I realized that that's why OT found me was, it was the best way to marry you know, science and evidence with the art of helping people become more and do more. And it was bigger than just talking about change. It was helping people make the change in their own life. And so that's kind of how I got to OT. Oh, you know, that's a big question that you originally were trying to tackle. What prevents people from being happy? <laughs> um, I just read this book, Anti-Fragile, by Nassim Talib, I believe. And in it, he talks about it's not so much about, uh, you know, uh, finding things that make us happy. 
It's about removing the things that make us unhappy. And in the in the work that you've done, Hallie, what you know, have you been able to to answer that question of what prevents people from being happy? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think I've helped people figure that out for themselves. Um, and I think also I've been able to help people be okay asking that question because I do think often we feel like if we're unhappy, it's our fault. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think there are a lot of barriers that are not imposed by us, but might be imposed by types of relationships or choices we make based on what's available or access or, you know, resources we have. Um, I think there's a lot more to that puzzle. And I think that what I, at the end of the day, really value and believe in is that each person should be able to make choices for themselves um, and, and be able to deal, you know, with those consequences. And so I think if they can understand that happiness is something that, you know, it ebbs and flows, it comes and goes, you can't have good without struggle, you can't have light without dark. And, you know, if you can change your expectations a little bit and have a little grace for yourself, you're going to be able to better problem solve and, and live in a way that you're happy with. Um, Cause I think we're often our own worst critic, right? Like we can't often hold space for ourselves to, to not be okay or to, to feel really down, but often that passes and there are good moments. I love that. You said hold space for ourselves oh, uh, yeah. when we're feeling down. What does that look like holding space for yourself? Like, give me an example of that. Yeah, I, um, it's a really good question. I think, that looks like, I mean, the best example I can give would be just from my own personal life. I think that looks like, you know, when you're having a really bad day or you're feeling like you're at your wits end, you know, being okay, letting that out, whether that be crying it out or, you know, writing it down or distracting yourself from it for a little bit just to come back and process it. I think it's being comfortable living in that uncertainty, um, that that stressful moment might be posing and, you know, being able to, to honor that. And it might be a small thing, like you did a really hard thing today, Holly, you should be proud of that. Or, um, something I do pretty often with my wife actually, is we do a daily grateful. And I think that helps you hold space because you're able to say, this is what I'm really grateful for today. And here's why. And then it helps you kind of approach the times you're less grateful for or might be struggling to deal with with a good foundation of like hey I'm okay and I have these things and and that's good I love that you do it you know with your partner you said your wife you're married yes I am I love that you know uh, me and my girl we we don't do a daily grateful but uh, in this other book that I read the upward spiral he had these four questions that you should ask yourself uh, every day you you and your partner one is what was the most challenging part of your day? What was the best part of your day? What made you laugh? And then what are you looking forward to? And we, we ask ourselves that almost every day. We don't get to it every day. Uh, but we, we try to click through those uh, to share it. And, and it's, it's synonymous with, you know, like, you know, the daily grateful. I love that. Uh, do you usually do that in the morning or at night? We do it at the end of the day at night. I love that. That's a, that's a great way to tuck yourself in, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, like even if you had an argument, it's like, you know, we got to do this daily grateful, right? So let's, let's put it all to the side, kids. Um, you know, so I was, I was going back through my notes for uh, the book Anti-Fragile. And so he was talking about uh, happiness versus unhappiness. And he said, it's more about removing the irritants, the things that make you unhappy, like television, newspapers, the boss daily commute, <laughs> air conditioning, economic forecasts, gyms, and emails. Uh, so that's his list of things. And, you know, of course, everybody has their list of things that makes up. Some people love their commute. I know people who uh, love it because they take the train. It gives them a chance to either listen to podcasts or audio books or to, to write or to talk to a loved one on the opposite side of the coast. Uh, the coast. So some people love a commute. Some people love this stay at home and working from home. Uh, it's really about you exploring it. That's the beauty of journalism, of journaling is uh, you get to keep track of the things that make you happy and the things that don't make you happy and uh, what, 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 what kind of brings you calm over time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it's funny, I've been thinking a lot as we're talking about just how my routine has changed, for example, and I, I do have a commute for work to the college campus I work on. And I used to listen to a lot of podcasts on that commute because I just, you know, for me, seeking knowledge is a way that I nurture myself. And so now that I'm not in the car doing that, I've had to think of other ways that I um, am seeking knowledge, um, because there's something for me that just pairs podcast listening with being in the car, um, much like listening to, you know, the radio or something like that. So I think it's great to think back about those things that you really value and how to bring them into what's going on with your life today. And I think also know that, you know, routines might change for you. For example, you know, you might stop um, listening to podcasts for a little bit of time, or there's been periods in my life where I got to turn NPR off because it's just too much. And I need something that's, you know, more powerful or more hopeful. Um, you got to seek out the optimism sometimes. I love that. Seek out the optimism. Um, and that goes back to you, like, you know, trying to figure out what prevents people from being happy. Uh, did you have a happy childhood? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I think people, that is something that, um, can carry with you, whether it was good or bad and, you know, kind of define more than it needs to define. But, um, I think each person can at different periods of their life, look back and say, this was hard, but I learned, you know, and I think we often look back on childhood and think of it as one like moment snapshot, like a camera picture, but that's not necessarily the case. Like it, it was a process and it was a journey. And so there's going to be goods and bads. Uh, yeah. Can you can you take us through that? What was hard, but you learned from it? Because I think so many people underestimate the value of of going through challenges and going over obstacles. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can get caught up in, in how hurtful and painful it was. But there is always a lesson to be learned. What what was the what was the, the hard part and what was the lesson learned from it? I think um, for me. I was the oldest, I am the oldest child, you know, my parents divorced when I was about eight years old. And I, I think that became very internalized for me. And I immediately became someone who wanted to make sure things were balanced and I was solving problems and I was, 
finding more answers than problems. Um, and so I think, you know, that kind of played out later in my life in figuring out, you know, what I'm really good at and being able to harness the things that, that those experiences gave me in a positive way, whether it be, you know, being devoted to my profession or, you know, being a servant leader, um, and being okay, taking care for taking care of others, as long as I realize that I have to take care of myself too. And this took, you know, I'm going to be 34 in June. So this took a long time to figure out. Um, and I think that's important to remember is that it's not always about the destination. I mean, I think it's easier for human beings to think about how A plus B gets you to C, but there's all these other things in between. And it took a lot of failure and it took a lot of messing up to be able to harness what my experiences as a kid, um, you know, taught me. And so, um, I think as long as you stay open to the learning and think about what you need to support you in that and who you need in your circle, it it works out for the best. When you look back at the divorce of your your parents and you look at your marriage now, are, what were the lessons learned that you brought with you to your current marriage where you're like, you know, we we need to do this but not do that, if that oh. makes sense. Or I want to bring this from it. Yeah. Um, I think that um, one thing is communication. I think you have to be able to talk about it, even if it means um, that what you're saying is hard to say or might be hard for someone else to hear. But I think it's important in close relationships, you know, whether it be a, a marriage or about to be married, you know, that you're able to say how you feel and feel heard and valued, um, and that you approach things as a team, like a real partner, about you know decisions around finances or decisions around other things, you want to be able to, um, approach things together, um, however you can. You know, I understand when I was younger, you always hear, uh, people talk about like they want a partnership or marry your best friend. And and I really understand that now that I'm older, you know, at 44, it's like, you realize like you, you want someone that you can move forward with versus when I was a kid, the message was more like, the man made the decisions and the, and the woman was, you know, uh, in the kitchen or she was a supportive role. And, but, but yeah. as you get older, you realize like you, you, it's not, the world is so much, it's like the wild west out there now, you know, it's like everybody's making money. You got kids with, with these YouTube channels making millions of dollars. So what, what happens if your kids are the breadwinner in a family and, you know, so it's it's so much more uh, dynamic, and and if you you really want to pick somebody who you feel like you're both on the same team, and and it's a partnership uh, as you move forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing that I've learned through my life and really value is that you know at the end of the day we're each still our own person, and we make the daily decisions to engage with who we engage with and be with who we want to be with, and that. Um, I think remembering that's really important because as you pointed out, Leo, societies change like what we once knew as important to societal roles around marriage and such. It's also different. And I think we often see certain couples or see certain relationships and think that, that it's like that all the time. And the reality is like, this is, you know, it's a commitment to another person and it's, uh, 
you just have to be able to evaluate it occasionally. I think it's important to stay checked in on on all the things that led you to where you are as much as possible. Um, when you look at like the work that you're you're doing to help other people, and you know you're married, how what are some of the other ways that you do take care of yourself? Because a lot of us are giving so much to our work, and then we mm. have nothing left when we come home. We have nothing left for our significant other, and yeah. and we end up dropping a ball somewhere. What what it in terms of do you have a, a guiding principle of of how you're living your life, or a mantra, or does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It makes perfect sense. A couple things come to mind. Um, I think having boundaries between work and home are really, really important. And those are very challenged right now. For example, with the global pandemic and how it's impacting what home looks like for people right now. But when I was, um, and I still do this now, just even as a faculty member, but I'm really clear about when work stops and when home begins. And I was as a clinician too. And I think for me, it was because I wanted to be able to model to people how to care for yourself best, not just through the treatment plans I came up with or the interventions I did, but that I was doing it in my everyday life. And so I, I think one mantra of mine is if I'm not leading by example, then I'm not leading at all. And I I really wanted to be able to care for myself the way I'm asking others to try caring for themselves you know, that's, it's transparent. There's integrity in that. And I really value it. A, a lot of the people who come to you for occupational therapy and go to occupational therapy, what are most of them coming for? Like what, what's brought most of them through those doors? Well, in my experience, you know, working in community mental health, um, they're often coming, um, for a couple of reasons. One, they've been referred to OT for certain skill building things like, you know, um, taking care of your apartment or, you know, managing your finances. But I think the common theme is people are coming to OT to, you know, be able to do the things that they want to do in a way that feels normal to them. I think people who live with mental illness face a lot of stigma and people make a lot of conclusions about what they can and can't do. And the people I've worked with just want to be able to define that for themselves and find ways to do it, whether it mean adapting a routine or, you know, compensating for memory loss or, um, you know, trying to get back to work, whatever that looks like in a way that they're proud of and satisfied with. Is there is there a way that OT is not being utilized? Like I imagine it's in schools, like they have school counselors. Uh, should we have occupational therapists in schools or at a workplace or? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we have OTs in you know, most public schools um, to help children who might have an individualized education plan access learning, for example. I think um, OTs are not being utilized enough with transition age youth. Um or, um, you know, at-risk youth who might have be struggling with the transition to adulthood. I don't think OTs are being utilized enough for these normal transition periods in American life or around the world, for example, like moving into retirement or starting a new job or, um, you know, planning to become a family. Like um, one emerging area for OTs is um, maternal health and just how to how do moms deal with the transition to becoming a new mom and what that role means and how they handle that for their own wellness. Um, 
So I think there's those are a few examples. Wow. Like, how, how do you help moms tra- make that transition? Like, what are some of the things that you cover with that? That's fascinating. Um, I think one of those things is just thinking about, you know, your life is soon to become very, not just important to yourself, but important to the well-being of another human. And so I think often what a role transition looks like is like, where do I end and where does this person I care for begin and how do we keep those um, together, but also separate enough that you feel that you have, you know, more to offer than being a mom. I think that's a common thing is that, you know, it, it you don't know where you s- start and stop when you, you know, have sleep deprivation and all these things, or you have lack of support. And so, um, being able to think about what, you know, what you want to do for yourself once your baby's born or how you want to care for yourself, um, and who can help you do that. It's kind of thinking about like what, what works now that you can take with you. It's a strengths-based approach really. And I think the other thing is, you know, what can you do to take care of yourself as your body, you know, normalizes back to its homeostatic place of hormones, because, you know, making a kid and having a kid, there's a lot of hormonal changes. So, it's almost like just being able to plan ahead for yourself and, and try out what might work now so that when those stressful moments come, you're, you're better prepared. I love that. And, you know, with this quarantine and coronavirus, is it, uh, are there online uh, services available? In terms of online access to an OT? Yeah. Yeah. I know of a few um, people in my community who are doing, you know, online telehealth-based services. Um, I, I think one of the challenges that has been posed by COVID is just, I think, overall how poorly prepared we were to, in a moment's notice, move clinical care or, you know, health care, even mental health care, to an online format. Um, but I, I know of OTs that do private practice that, you know, offer support online. And I know of um, some other communities of practice that, you know, OTs could offer their insights and help um, through Facebook or other things. You know, this has been such a great episode. Hallie, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think people need to know about occupational therapy and in terms of, because I was also uh, thinking about when you talked about transitions, college students have such a tough time transitioning into the quote unquote real world, how do you help them make that transition? Yeah, that's a great question. And also an area of interest of mine, actually, I think, um, I think adulting is hard and is nonstop from the moment you turn 18. And it can also be very overwhelming because you then have to interact with systems. You don't have a lot of control over, um, but I think one way, and there are actual occupational therapists doing this work around um, the world. I know of a couple programs, for example, there's one out of uh, University of Southern California where the OT department is um, running these wellness seminars that all first-year undergraduate students have to take, um, and where the OTs basically instruct students on how to make their own wellness plans and think about what they have to do and need to do every day in a way that is sustainable. So what are you going to do if certain situations arise or, you know, um, how do you manage, you know, financial aid, those kinds of things. So kind of thinking about all the different components of wellness. Um, and then I know of another OT colleague of mine. Um, she teaches these courses at university of Illinois, Chicago that help, um, healthcare students 
kind of understand how to wellness plan for themselves in hopes that they um, can advocate for what they need and think about what wellness means when they start interacting with clients or, or patients. So kind of giving it this lived experience to what it means to care for one's wellness so that they have a better way of understanding it and approaching it through experiential learning when it comes to caring for clients in the future. But I, I do think that college student mental health and wellness and overall wellness is, is poorly cared for at this point. There's just low resources and that's a great opportunity for OT. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hallie Reed, thank you so much for, for being on this episode. Plug all your things. Where can people find you? And, and, and if not you, other occupational therapy resources. Yeah. So in terms of me, I am on um, Twitter and I am on Facebook. Um, on Twitter, it's at Hallie Reed. Um, I use that the most, I think, to connect with people. In terms of OT resources, there's a couple that come to mind. So um, every state that people live in has an OT association that you can um, get resources from. And the American Occupational Therapy Association has great resources about what OT is, how you can access them, what we do, um, and um, is just a great way to get a sense of where we are and who we are as a resource. Um, so I would plug those, I think. Thank you so much. And I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? I love this question. I, um, I would say that, you know, a lot of people are holding hope for you while you're struggling to hold it for yourself. So I think it's important to reach out sometimes, even when it's hard and scary versus reaching in. Thank you so much, Hallie Reed. Thank you all for listening in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you reaching out to a coach, a counselor, a therapist, an occupational therapist. Call the 1-800-SUICIDE number. There are international lines linked in the show notes. Uh, so for the listeners in Norway and Belgium and Israel, check the link, check the show notes. There is help for you somewhere. And uh, check out thrivewithleo.com to work with yours truly for one-on-one coaching. Thank you, and let's get to tomorrow together.